Welcome to Houston Sports Talk with your host, Robert Land. Yeah, we've jumped in our time machine for Throwback Thursday. And with the Super Bowl just a couple of days away, it's the perfect time to throw back to a conversation I had with legendary Houston Post and Houston Chronicle writer Mickey Herskowitz, who covered the very first Super Bowl that Houston ever hosted. Before I play the interview with Mickey for you, I'll share a couple of quick stories from two Super Bowls I was lucky enough to cover. Back in 2000, I was working for the CBS in Memphis. And because Tennessee was in the Super Bowl, which was in Atlanta that year, I covered the Titans and the Rams in Super Bowl 34. And remember that this was just four years after the Oilers had moved to Tennessee. So it was really bizarre because all the Houston media made the trip with Bud Adams and so many ex-Houston Oilers at the Super Bowl. And a true story, in every press conference, Bruce Matthews, who'd of course spent 14 years as a Houston Oiler, kept referring to the Titans as the Houston-Tennessee franchise, which I found hilariously subversive. It was a crazy week in Atlanta with an ice storm a couple of days before the game, cars sliding into accidents on the freeways, and I was lucky enough to shoot the game on the field. When Isaac Bruce caught the game-winning touchdown with about two minutes left, he ran right at me in the corner of the end zone. It was like kids dream, to be honest with you, but in true Oilers fashion, the Titans were stopped on the one-yard line to end Tennessee's hopes with no time left, and I was right there on the goal line to see all of it and record all of that. If that wasn't bizarre enough, four years later, I moved back home to Houston, and I'm covering the Super Bowl here. So with nothing to do at halftime, I'm hanging in the tunnel underneath the stadium, looking to see what celebrity I might see when none other than Janet Jackson passes me on her way out to perform the halftime show. Little did I know that she was about to be involved in the craziest halftime moment in Super Bowl history. So I got to see the calm right before the storm. Of course, just three years ago when the Super Bowl was here in Houston, current 49ers coach and ex-Texans assistant Kyle Shanahan was on the wrong side of the biggest choke job in Super Bowl history. But let's get back in our way back machine. Go back to 1974, the first time a Super Bowl was in Houston, Mickey Herskowitz, who spent over five decades with the Post and Chronicle, was there at Rice Stadium. Let's listen back to my chat with Mickey three years ago. What's the first thing that comes to mind when you think of that, the Super Bowl eight, uh, the Vikings and the, and the Dolphins? I have a funny thought about that. The, the highlight for me of that week was the hour before the kickoff. It was the worst traffic jam in the history of the city of Houston. The game, of course, was played at Rice Stadium. I think cars were actually stuck in gridlock on Sunset and Rice Boulevards for close to 35, 40, 45 minutes. What happened was nobody had prepared for all the cars and rent cars and limousines that would be coming to a Super Bowl. Rice Stadium and the Rice Owls had, of course, in their glory days in the Southwest Conference, had hosted many sellouts and against A&M and Texas and Arkansas. So the stadium, which seated 70,000, had often been filled to capacity. But the fans who attended those games generally came from the neighborhood. They, they walked. Of course, their crowds consisted of about 
25% of students, even though Rice had a small enrollment, they had their families and friends and had access to tickets. So the Southwest Conference games, traffic was never really a major problem. But for the Super Bowl, it was. And I remember being stuck in my car, watching the clock wind down as the kickoff was about to start. And I looked over into the next lane, the left to my left, there was a long black limousine, and in it was the commissioner of the National Football League, Pete Rozelle. And Rozelle had to be on the field before the game for a ceremony. And finally, he threw open the door and started running. And we were almost at the beginning of the block leading up to the stadium entrance. So he had a pretty good run to make. And it was amazing to watch Roselle, who was a tall, lanky guy, not real athletic, but he his coat, I could still see his overcoat flapping in the January cold, running, racing and zigzagging in, in and out between the cars. And like there was a little Fiat in front of me and it was as if Roselle actually hurdled the hood of the car trying to <laughs> get to the sidewalk into the stadium. I, I'm sure he didn't actually hurdle it, but it looked like it. And he made a mad rush, and I'm, I actually had to listen to the kickoff on the radio. So I knew that Roselle did make the presentation and was there for the flip of the coin. But uh, that scene before the game, trying to get into the stadium... And when I actually got to my seat in the press box, the stadium was really just half full. It was about, about midway through the first quarter, they finally got the crowd settled. It was a really interesting and colorful week. The game, as most people will call, 24-7 to Miami, they just pounded Minnesota without mercy. What I remember best about the game is Bob Greasy only threw seven passes, the fewest number of passes ever thrown in a Super Bowl game to this day. But he didn't need to. Every other play, he handed the ball to either Larry Zonka or Jim Kick or Mercury Morris. And they just shredded the Vikings' famed purple people eaters. Interesting choice of nicknames. The, that was the, what the Vikings called their defense. And Miami's defense was known as the no-name defense. They didn't have any stars, but they had an undersized linebacker, Nick Bonacani, who was the spark plug of their defense and maybe their whole team and one of their captains well one of the interesting th- things uh mickey when i was looking up in the notes uh was that the dolphins uh, actually practiced at the oilers practice facility near the astrodome and the vikings weren't too happy about their practice facilities at uh, houston's delmar high school in fact bud grant said I don't think our players have seen anything like this since junior high school because the locker room was cramped and uncarpeted and they had no lockers. What do you remember about that and the fact that the that also the game was played at Rice Stadium instead of the Astrodome? Well, of course, the, the Astrodome should have been where they played it, but they had already put in a rule for the Super Bowl that the, the, the stadium had to seat a minimum of 60,000. And no matter how they configured it, uh, where they put seats on the on the floor ground level, they couldn't get the capacity up to 60,000 legitimate tickets. And so they, they, the Astrodome really wasn't available. It was ruled out by the fact that it was actually at a 42, 48,000 seat capacity for baseball and really wasn't 
built for or uh, configured for football. So the sad part about the Astrodome is that it was should have been a perfect place for a Super Bowl game, or certainly one of the early ones. And sadly, it never hosted one at all. But you're bringing up the locker room is hilarious, Robert, because that's one of my most vivid, three most vivid memories. Uh, the 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 constant complaining by Bud Grant about their locker room facilities. The players actually had to hang their clothes on a nail. That's what they had in the high school stadium locker room. And it was and before it was Delmore Stadium, it was just called the high school stadium. It was where they played the bigger high school games. And the the um, they had to hang their their clothes on the on the nail and the, there were like four shower heads in the shower and they found pigeons nesting in the ceiling and uh the players just moaned and groaned about that and i thought man the way minnesota played at that game the pigeons deserved their own locker room <laughs> now this was the only super bowl also mickey that i understand the game ball had stripes that's right, and I have no idea what the significance of that was. I guess there was always an effort to reconcile and and acknowledge the the rivalry between the American Football League and the National Football League, although they never competed head to head, you know, and as rival leagues. Maybe in some way the stripes was a sort of a nod at the existence of the American Football League, but I have no idea where that came from. But one final note on the. Uh, the, the infamous uh, locker room problems of the of the Vikings. Uh, out of that episode and that game and and that story came one of John Madden's unending truths about the Super Bowl, and that was that the team that complained the most will always lose the game. And of course, in that instance, it was certainly true that the Vikings lost it. Uh, big time. And over the years, kind of keeping track, I would say it's pretty close to true that the team that had the most to complain about would end up being the team that was most distracted. And perhaps, you know, there was some logic in what John said, that the team that was distracted and was complaining, they were the ones that didn't come, didn't come up big for their Super Bowl appearance and didn't win the game. A couple other notes that I have I thought were pretty interesting. First of all, a headlinesman, Leo Miles, was the first African-American to officiate in a Super Bowl, the one here. And then also, you know, we see all these huge halftime performances now. The halftime show, Mickey, featured the Longhorn Band along with Judy Mallett, Miss Texas 1973, playing the fiddle in a tribute to American music titled a musical America. That's not Michael Jackson and Prince and the and the and what we saw later on. It, it makes you think that uh, they didn't have a lot of creativity going into that game, and I think it had a lot to do with the fact that it wasn't the, the, the Astrodome. It was Rice Stadium, and they had real strict guidelines for teams playing in the in, in Rice Stadium. And even for the Super Bowl, I doubt that the, the the league office had a lot of time to think about bringing in name entertainers or some special performances. You know, when the, when they brought the game to New Orleans uh, 
about that time in, in the uh, 70s, they reenacted the Battle of New Orleans. So it seems like Houston felt pretty short in the entertainment department at halftime. But tell you the truth, by halftime, Miami was well on its way to a 24 to nothing lead. And people had already seen the game. So the halftime was probably a great time to go out and get a beer and a bag of popcorn and, and settle for that. Let me ask you this. Now, I don't know if you know much about this, but a, 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 the legendary writer Hunter S. Thompson covered the game for Rolling Stone magazine. And according to what I read, his exploits in Houston are legendary. Do you have any idea what that might be about? <laughs> you know, I have no idea. I didn't even know Hunter Thompson was in Houston for that game. And I don't know of anybody that, that ever saw him. So my guess is he covered the game from his hotel room. But I'll tell you what was funny. The, 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 the press, the media, spent most of the week complaining about how little there was to do in Houston. And the truth is that, you know, compared to what's going on now downtown with all of the renovations and hotels and entertainment and restaurants, there was really very little to do. Uh, downtown Houston pretty much shut down after about 7 o'clock when the department stores emptied. There, weren't a lot, there wasn't a, a lot of nightlife in Houston. And to tell you how dismal the pickings were, the highlight of the week for entertainment was the poker game the writers had every night leading up to the, to the uh, Sunday of the kickoff. And the poker game became so well known that the Houston City Police raided it. And that was a scandal. That, that was probably <laughs> the most exciting thing that happened all week. There were about eight guys milling around in, in a suite at the uh, downtown Hyatt Hotel. I don't remember if it was Bob Birdie uh, from, I think, Chicago, or who the writer was, but the police burst in like it was really, you know, they'd caught Al Capone selling bootleg whiskey. When they told him that they were under arrest, one of the writers just leaned back and said, well, God damn, we may be under arrest, but we're not leaving. We're not going anywhere till we finish this hand. <laughs> and finally, somebody called one of Pete Rosell's lieutenants, and they got it straightened out, and the police went ahead and left him alone. But I guess some security guy at the hotel got wind of the poker game and knew that gambling was illegal and decided to phone in the circumstances of this unlawful nightmare that was taking place in the Hyatt. But anyway, the, the, that was the only time I know of that the uh, writers were under arrest for covering a Super Bowl game. Yeah, one of the things that we, we just take for granted now is there's that big Tuesday media day circus thing that goes on before the Super yeah. Bowl. I'm guessing there was nothing like that. Well, there wasn't. Uh, they had interviews. And as I recall, it wasn't even mandatory that the players showed up because half of them didn't. If they did skip it, then probably there was a minimal fine, $100 or something. But uh, there, there wasn't the cattle call. Uh, there wasn't the stampede. Uh, they just had a few players sitting, on, sitting around tables on the field at Rice and answering questions. And there weren't any great stories that came out of those player interviews. The Dolphins, of course, had a great team, uh, and you know, were uh, the, the nucleus of that team uh, went undefeated, became the only team in NFL history to do that. They had a great offense, Don Shula, who had had championship teams in Baltimore and had lost two really uh, 
painful uh, Super Bowl games. The first one, 1969, uh, that was historic to the New York Jets. But Shula was a great coach, and that game sort of solidified it. Zonka ran for 145 yards, and that was the record for rushing for one ball carrier in a Super Bowl game for I don't know how many years before it was broken. But they just pounded Minnesota into the ground, and play after play, it was just Zonka up the middle. And (laughs) it, it was so predictable and so monotonous that uh, one of the better stories after the game was Greasy was talking about how they were on the goal line and um, he just had a little brain lapse, a brain cramp, and turned to Zonka and said, Zonk, what's the, what's the snap count? And Zonka said, on three. And Greasy went back on his center and called out one, two, and the ball came up. And the, he, everybody started moving, and Greasy's stuck with the ball. I don't know what the play was, but he just gave it to Zonka, and he just crashed across the line into the end zone and scored a touchdown. So even their broken plays ended up in happy turns. But uh, after the game, Greasy said, I should have known better than to ask Zonka what the play was. He'd be the last guy to know. And I thought to myself, actually, the last guy to know was Greasy. He forgot. He forgot to snap down. Uh, yeah, and Zaka went, went on to win the MVP. And I, I wondered, when, when did you know that the Super Bowl had become this big event? You know, at what point do you start realizing, hey, this is like a major thing that's become almost like a national holiday? Was there a point that came along or it just happened sort of gradually? Well, I think it happened with Game 3, uh, the, the New York Jets and the Baltimore Colts in Miami. The fact that the Jets were 19-point underdogs and won that game 16-7, to the first American Football League team to win the Super Bowl, it had such a lasting impact, and it was such a historic victory for a team that no one really gave any chance that the feedback, the buzz, the stories that came out of that game went on for months. And it was such a sad day for Shula. I mean, he was a great coach and it was a disgrace that led to his leaving Baltimore. So that's what told me that the Super Bowl was going to be huge. I I don't know how many people know this would make a great trivia question, but I was the guy that managed the first Super Bowl. There were seven of us assigned by Pete Rozelle. I was with the American Football League as director of television and marketing. Actually, my title was executive vice president, director of public relations. But I was really the liaison with NBC. And when the merger took place, we only had six weeks to get that get the Super Bowl ready, and we only had a, a team of seven people. I'm the last survivor of the original seven who organized that game. And I read just today that they have 10,000 volunteers. I mean, that, that would have been a good, pretty good percentage of the crowd that day. But <laughs> for, for, for three weeks, I was the only person in, in Los Angeles. And I went out there with a list of 22 things that needed to be done, and I did them by myself. And then the last three weeks, some of the PR people from teams around the league both leagues came in and and took over certain responsibilities. But I had to do everything from having the tickets printed, uh, having game souvenirs for the media, laying out the press box and assigning seats, arranging for practice 
facilities, practice fields for the uh, Packers, the Kansas City Chiefs, making arrangements for their hotels. And I'll never forget, I had an argument with Vince Lombardi. I had to go to Roselle with it. Lombardi wanted to stay in San Francisco and fly in the day of the game. We were having a hard enough time with six weeks to publicize and promote it to have the Packers not available to the local media. So we finally got Lombardi to agree to come to Los Angeles, but he got, he stayed in some suburb about 30 miles from the, from the stadium. So guys had to ride a bus that took about an hour each way to interview the Packers. Also had to have a, the, arrange the carpool cars for the general managers, coaches, uh, uh, owners and we had 60 cars. Chrysler became the uh, car sponsor for the first Super Bowl. They gave me 120 cars, 60 for the executives of the NFL and 60 as pool cars for the media. And I'll never forget, I, I went back to the Houston Post after the game. I, I resigned from my position with the American Football League and I've second guessed myself many times over that. But I'm back in Houston, I'm back with the Houston Post. And in June, a guy, an executive with the ad agency that had the Chrysler account, a guy named Jack Barlow, lovely guy, he gave me a Chrysler to take home after the game for doing a few favors for him. And I drove that car for a year. It was a Chrysler Imperial LeBaron with opera lights in the back and blue leather upholstery and a solid white exterior. It was a jewel of a car and a became a classic. But what I was going to say, the story is I'm sitting at home in Houston and Jack Barlow calls me in June. And he said, Mickey, I thought you'd like to know, we just found the last car from the media at the airport in Phoenix. And I just, I just cracked up. Uh, it, it wasn't something that I'd been thinking about what happened to the cars, but it never occurred to me that some guy was going to get in one and drive it to the, to, to Phoenix to fly wherever he had to go. But they had a heck of a time rounding up those cars. <laughs> well, one other thing um, that was pretty interesting about that, that you, you talk about Shula, and he more than made up for the what happened in the in Super Bowl three, not only winning the game in Houston, but it was the year before, right, that, that he had the undefeated season with the Dolphins before that, the year before that he won the Super Bowl here in Houston, right? Yeah, it was a 72 season, actually. The amazing thing was Greasy broke a leg, and Earl Morrill was the guy that won more than half their games as a starting quarterback, and I may be off on this a little bit, but Morrill was 38, 39, 40 years old and had been a, a fine starting quarterback, but was you know just a guy, a backup quarterback who jumped in and, and helped them win a, not just the championship and Super Bowl, but also have an undefeated season. And the hardest decision Shula had to make, Greasy got well in time to play in the Super Bowl, and Morrill stayed on the bench, and Greasy quarterbacked them to their 17th win. And that Super Bowl at Rice Stadium, I guess it's the most famous sporting event in Rice Stadium, but Mickey, I don't think it's the most famous event that happened in Rice Stadium. It's still the 1962 John F. Kennedy speech where he challenged the United States to go to the moon. Yeah, absolutely. Uh, there were a number of things that happened in Rice Stadium that uh, Billy Graham had a, a, a revival there. And there were some great college games. Texas A&M was number one in the nation, unbeaten in 19 games under Bear Bryant 
1957, and Rice beat them seven to six. And to tell you how much, show you how much the game has changed, the college game, all of the game. But the Aggies had the ball at the Rice 18-yard line in the final minute, and it came down the third and fourth down. And Coach Bryant went for a trick play, the last play of the game, rather than just kick the field goal and try to win it nine to seven. But they missed the extra point earlier, and kicking extra points wasn't a sure thing. I mean, kicking a field goal wasn't a sure thing. Uh, from the 18-yard line, I think the goalpost was still on the on the, on the goal line, but uh, it was at least a 28, maybe a 38-yard kick. But what was really interesting of that, but irrelevant to what we're talking about, they had a guy on their team, Bobby Joe Conrad, that could kick the ball from almost midfield. And they found that out when he went to the Chicago Cardinals, and he became a great NFL kick kicker. But when he and he won the college All Star game that year, and kicked five field goals, a, a record. And when he was asked by the media after the game how many he kicked in college, he said none. They said how many did you try, and he said none. And they said what happened? He said Coach Bryant never let me try a kick. <laughs> he said he always picked his kicker on the basis of who did the best during the during the week in practice, and Lloyd Taylor always outkicked me in practice. But Conrad had an NFL leg, and nobody knew it. So they lost the championship. That would have been Coach Bryant's first national championship, 7-6 to six to Rice because he couldn't try an 18-yard field goal. Well, Mickey, I appreciate you coming on and talking to us about this because I know a lot of people out there – you know, don't have a real sense of what it was like the first time a Super Bowl was played in Houston. It, it was 43 years ago, and for a lot of people, it's a, it's a whole other age as far as Super Bowl history. A lot of people don't realize there were, was a Super Bowl here before they had the first one at Reliance Stadium. But enjoyed it, Robert. Enjoyed remembering it. You're listening to Houston Sports Talk. Don't forget to follow Houston Sports Talk on Facebook and Twitter. Subscribe to us on iTunes, Spotify, the Google Podcast app, or the Stitcher app. You can support us by giving us a five-star review on iTunes or by telling your friends about us. Spread the word, everybody. Thanks for listening. Attack!